dear listeners. Shortly after we finished recording the episode you're about to hear, we heard about the sad passing of Nichelle Nichols. Nichelle Nichols was a lifelong activist for equality whose biggest fan was Martin Luther King. He thought that the sheer sight of her on the bridge showed that everybody will go to the stars someday. Star Trek was a show for everyone. It was almost 60 years ago that she made her first appearance as Uhura, and she instantly became an icon. By playing a character who could command forces and fly spaceships, she was among the first black women to play an authority figure on TV, a trailblazer who helped a cause of on-screen representation no end. This was something she cared deeply about, and after Star Trek, she went on to work with NASA to recruit minority and female personnel and inspired generations to follow. She was also a super talented musician who sang with the Duke Ellington Band from the age of 16. For most other people, that would have been a career highlight. Long after any of us are gone, Nichelle Nichols, her legacy will live on. date July 2022. The Horror Cult Films podcast team have decided to do a spin-off looking at the Star Trek films. Across five episodes, we aim to explore all 13 of them, boldly going where many Trekkies have gone before. Joining me on this mission are my crew, my comms expert, Jim Lamming. Permission to come aboard, sir. <laughs> yes, and my uh, helmsman, Alistair Yule, who's forgotten more about Star Trek than I've ever known. Hi, Alistair. All right there. Now, Star Trek needs no introduction. Created by Gene Roddenberry in 1964, it's one of the biggest, boldest franchises ever made, spawning numerous shows, films, books, toys, games, etc. You name it, there is a Star Trek version of it. But before we launch straight into the first film, let's have a chat about it more broadly. Gents, I want to discuss your personal journeys into Star Trek. I'm going to start with you, Jim. It's been something that's ingrained in pop culture for my entire life. When I was a kid, everyone knew who Captain Kirk and Spock were, possibly due to the song you'd always hear at the school disco. Oh, the Star yes. Trek. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, this was a time before the internet memes, all that business. Yet yeah, you'd still know what Star Trek was, even if you hadn't seen it, which was quite impressive. Uh, obviously, BBC Two repeated the original series a lot, and I'd probably seen a couple of episodes, but it wasn't until Next Generation came along when I actually cared about it. It was on like, every other day after school, if I recall. I think it was your 6.50 time slot on BBC Two. And mm-hmm. I remember when I first saw it, I was thinking, what the hell is this? This isn't Kirk and Spock. What's going on? Like, it's 
because my first introduction to it was it just appearing on TV one day. Like not being a big Star Trek fan at the time, I you know wasn't really anticipating anything like it. So it was something different, but eventually you kind of got used to it. It was uh, yeah, it was something I dip in and out of. I wasn't massively into it, but again, when you're limited to only a few TV channels, you, you're gonna watch one of four things yeah we don't have the same kind of buyer's remorse about it where you've got like netflix uh prime now tv disney plus and hulu Mm. all kind of dropping new content every week so maybe there's a bit of an event about the whole thing alistair what about yourself how did you get into star trek well for me it was really um i suppose in many ways opposite similar yeah opposite to Jim and that uh, it was the next generation. It was a TV show that would come on and I'd watch uh, Picard and his crew venture into a new different adventure every single week. And I just sort of enjoyed enjoyed the show, the sort of space battles, the conflict resolution, the and a lot of very good stories. And of course, uh, who could ever forget the Borg? It was through that that sort of got me into checking out what's the rest of this? Because this is, this is a sequel TV series to, uh, which now gets referred to as the original series or just simply Star Trek. And uh, quite enjoyed some of those as well. I mean, being a kid, I did find the uh, special effects and everything very dated, but uh, I still enjoyed it. And uh, saw the movies as uh, they premiered on TV. And... As I'm sure we'll discuss at some point, I did enjoy some of the movies more than others, but I just found it quite immersive. It's very different from your everyday life. It's it does contain elements of politics to it and messages, but in, it's sort of clad in a good escapism sort of bubble. I really really liked it. Yeah, because I think the sort of moral dilemma aspect of it's definitely part of why it's been so successful, this sort of thing of what, what would you do in that situation? And then usually you've got a couple of different alternatives. And then Kirk, of course, chooses the right ones. He's played by Shatner and is therefore completely infallible. Um, <laughs> something thought about Star Trek versus the obvious comparison is Star Wars, which is also something just kind of sort of kind of sad about Star Trek in a way, right? Like it's, when I was telling my wife I need to use this room so I could record a podcast about Star Trek I've never felt so self-conscious about what we do in my <laughs> life um, and I, I reckon part of it is because where Star Wars is all about like rebels taking on an oppressive government here we have quite an idealized government this is a focus on bureaucracy diplomacy a big galactic united nations essentially you know we're watching the protectors of the status quo and I think that that maybe makes it something that's intuitively less cool than like, you know, here's laser guns go yeah. off left, right, and center. Mm-hmm. You know, here's a, a fucking big lightsaber going vroom. You know, this is, we have to use the, uh, the prime directive and not interfere with, uh, if, uh, with the land we find. It's it's not as cool, you yeah. know? If Star Wars was to be done from the same perspective as Star Trek, then we'd be watching it from, like, the captain of a Star Destroyer type <laughs> thing. It would be a very uh, different... I th- but also, to complement what you're saying there, I think there's also an attention to detail in Star Trek that's a much higher standard than what we have in Star Wars. Star Wars it, it, it's called sci-fantasy, whereas in Star Trek, they refer to it as science fiction. There's a lot of these technologies we don't have yet. And, of course, some have been proven 
to be correct. I mean, we, we all remember Kirk speaking into his flip-out communicator at the beginning of the episode in the 60s, and now we have uh, we all have smartphones. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, I think the sci-fi elements are certainly stronger than you have with Star Wars. There's a good point about sort of science fantasy there. There's more of a focus on the ships here, you know, there's more of a focus on some of the kind of procedures that we'll have to do. Not, I mean, the science of it's not necessarily any more robust, but they certainly talk about it in stronger terms. There's a lot more technical jargon here. Mm-hmm. No, and, it definitely uh, is, yeah. So, yeah, I think that's certainly an element that maybe makes it immediately less kind of uh, uh, accessible. But what's also an interesting comparison, right, is Star Wars won't diversify. Almost 50 years later, we're still getting things that have the word Skywalker in it constantly. With Star Trek... We have hundreds of episodes done across 12 different shows set in numerous timelines, and we've got loads of movies, loads of uh, novels, and so on. Not set on different ships with different crews. Exactly, yeah. It's like a big kind of... Like, we're really getting a universe here. You know, mm-hmm. Star Wars is merely a galaxy. And it's a galaxy... Very far where, away. Yeah, a galaxy very far away, but all revolves around the trials of a single family. With Star Trek, it's like, all right, you need an encyclopedic <laughs> knowledge of this. I think that makes it more of a kind of rich world to get into, but also means it's maybe less immediately cool than like, ah, oh, yeah, uh, which one of these two characters is going to be uh, related to Ray? Oh, Psyche for Obi Wan. Wrong. It's fucking Emperor. Like, and it's things like that that like make Star Wars seem really, really small. Where Star Trek is kind of a a load of infinite possibilities here, mm-hmm. the joys yeah. of exploration and new things. Not everything has to be related, does it? (laughs) As you say, there's an infinite possibility of things that can happen in space, and Star Trek probably goes above and beyond compared to Star Wars in terms of the things we see. To offer a counterpoint on that, uh, because there is, say, so much Trek, it also might mean that there's... It could be slightly daunting for new viewers to look at the Trek franchise and say, if I was to try and get into this where would I begin? Yes, I completely agree with you on that one. So my journey into Star Trek is a lot more basic. I've seen every film once, which was with Alistair, and uh, I've seen a couple of episodes, but really not very much. And yeah, the sheer amount of it does make it seem almost a bit intimidating. It's a bit like the sort of Russia-Ukraine relations right now, where there's always something else you need to know to really get the thing that you've just learned. And it makes me kind of... I just want to go on record and perhaps say that's a slight false equivalence. Oh, yeah, yes, yes. It was an attempt at, attempt at wit, probably not a very good one. Point being that um, there's always some, something new there, you know, and mm-hmm. that maybe makes it seem like, oh, do I really want to get into this thing? You know, do I really want to spend, like, the next few years catching up on it? It's the same thing of when you see, like, a great big fantasy series, like, take uh, the Wheel of Time books, for instance. I'm like oh, I really want to read these, but I'm like, there's 15 of them, and they look like they're about 500, 600 pages long. It's going to be a very long investment. Whereas, you know, now we're kind of used to, here's a whole series drops, it's 10 episodes, and you can watch a whole thing in a single uh, sitting if you want to. I think with Star Trek, at least, you've got those individual series, so Next Gen, Voyager, Deep Space Nine, they're all their own separate entity. Yeah, they may have a cameo, from a character from a different series come along or there may be a reference to something that happened. But other than that, it's slightly more accessible than 
say something that's been going on for 20 seasons and you've got to start from the beginning. So, Jim, how much of Star Trek have you seen overall? Uh, mainly, it's the next-gen stuff. Like, that's what I was into growing up. And I'd watch the films when they were on TV. I always enjoyed them. It wasn't until Abrams rebooted it in 2009 that I actually got into the original crew, that sort of thing. And from there, probably checked out, dipped in and out of some of the other series, such as, you know, watching all the Borg-centric episodes, like thanks to Netflix and so on. Um, but mainly, mainly it is the films. I, I do enjoy the TV show, but as you mentioned earlier about the uh, other half, <laughs> uh, she's not too fond on it, so um, <laughs> I don't get a lot of time to watch the TV shows. Although I have to say I've been watching Strange New Worlds recently. That's pretty good. Before I ask the same question to, to Alistair, do you guys want to take a wee guess? According to Wikipedia, how many total episodes of Star Trek are there across every incarnation of it? We're looking at a couple hundred, easy. 300. I'm, I'm going to say 900. It's That's eight, not that many. 850. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's a lot more than I thought. Yeah, okay, I was way underestimating uh, you, that. You know, the Americans do wow. like their 24-episode TV That uh, is true. Hey, Salster, do you reckon you've seen all 850? Well, um, I've not seen Star Trek Prodigy. And I do think that's because I'm not the target audience necessarily for that show. I think I'm up to date uh, with Star Trek. But then there's more coming. There's, I mean, this year alone we had season four of Discovery, season two of Picard, and season one of Strange New Worlds. That's a lot <clears throat> of Trek that came out this year. Oh, I mean, it's, it's quite impressive that we're still so, so active, you know, almost 60 years after the uh, after the first ever episode of Star Trek. I just want to point out uh, an interesting little tidbit about the current show Star Trek Strange New Worlds and that there was a pilot episode called The Cage which came out in the 60s uh, which starred Jeffrey Hunter as Captain Pike and this was an, intended to be a pilot for the TV show Star Trek but uh, some of the studio execs weren't too happy with some of the creative decisions so they went back and but they allowed them to do a second pilot episode and that's the one that stars William Shatner as Kirk but uh, A Strange New World's a TV show that actually features the Enterprise under the command of Captain Pike before Kirk takes takes over the con. What we're technically looking at here is for the first time in television history where a pilot episode was aired and 56 years later <laughs> the show gets commissioned. Ah, oh, it's not quite beautiful but about that. <laughs> it's poetic, I like it. Uh, across the next few weeks, we'll be looking at what our sort of favourite versions of this are going to be. My answers, of course, will be relatively uh, limited. But uh, when it comes to things like the show, these, this um, cultural significance of Star Trek, you know, nothing becomes this big unless there's some sort of merit behind it, unless it's got something to it, the only exception being Adam Sandler. So... What I'm wondering is, what is the main thing that you connect with with Star Trek? Because for me, it's the... I like watching the kind of calculated decision-making that we see in the show and also within the movies. I like watching them kind of sitting around in the bridge. They've got their own strengths, they've got their own weaknesses, and they can all kind of contribute towards a problem. That, I think, is far more rewarding than just, like, watching uh, action heroes. It does mean, however, that the strength of the movie, the strength of the episode, 
could potentially fall if the situation we're in isn't particularly interesting. But at the same time, it kind of feels much more like a crew than just watching like a few overpowered people save the day again. And for me, that's really what Star Trek's all about. That kind of conversation, that kind of discourse. And also, I guess, there's maybe something quite nice these days about a version of the future that's also really very optimistic. Mm, that, that's, that's part of it. Plus, you look at the crew and there's no discrimination, uh, gender, race, whatever, that, you know, everyone's part of the crew, everyone's treated mm. equally. And yeah. uh, that, that's one of the appeals to me. And it's been the same since the first series, and it's just got better and better as each iteration's come along. Yeah, because I believe that was a big part of Gene Roddenberry's kind of vision for this, wasn't it? That this would mm. be kind of like a, a future where you didn't see the kinds of polarizations that we have, uh, that we've, we've always had, essentially. And, uh, you know, I mean, you're looking at a show where they, I said, they had a multicultural crew before that'd be kind of mainstream on TV. You know, they, they didn't, they had, during the Cold War era, they have a Russian on their crew. The Russians aren't the baddies. You know, they have the first ever uh, interracial kiss on TV, I believe, which, uh, you know, for all his faults, is being a bit of a arrogant balloon of a man. Uh, William Shatner, I believe, also insisted upon, didn't he? I believe it's correct. I think the scene was originally written so that Spock or Leonard Nimoy would be the one to uh, do the kiss with Michelle Nichols Uhura. Um, but of course, uh, William Shatner wasn't having any of that. <laughs> and apparently they were told to do those two different takes. There was one where they almost kiss, and then there was one where they did. But what William Shatner went and did, and I kind of applaud him for this, uh, every time they would do the almost take, he would cross his eyes and pull a funny face directly into the camera. So he ruined, <laughs> he sabotaged all of those takes. So they had to go, he forced the studio to go with the one where he does kiss Uhura. You know, I like to think that he's doing this for all the right reasons, as opposed mm-hmm. to he just wanted to kiss her on TV the banner. <laughs> just whilst you were uh, talking about the, the crew of the Enterprise and its diversity as well, and you got, obviously we've got a Russian on the bridge during the Cold War, I also want to point out that uh, obviously Pearl Harbor was living memory for a lot of cast and crew and writers at the time, and we had Sulu, a Japanese helmsman. Mm. Yeah, so, um, absolutely. And his character was a great inclusion. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I mean, that sort of the radical kind of politics of Star Trek at the time. You know, that, that, that does make it. That does make it seem pretty cool still. There's something really sort of iconic and awesome about the original crew, that cast that played those characters, and I think that's one of the biggest problems that any Star Trek show will have is how do you match up to that? How do you equal that? Yeah, this is a bit like a problem that you have uh, discussing this in one of the previous episodes of the Horror Cult Films podcast. In fact, I think it was the last one. Is uh, a bit like when you're doing a film about demonic possession, people will immediately compare it to The Exorcist because you have to have an exorcism sequence in it. And in this case, if you're looking at a, uh, a show about a Starfleet uh, and they're, uh, you're using the Star Trek name especially, then people already have this kind of love for uh, the original crew whether it's Bones, whether it's Kirk, whether it's Spock, whether it's Scotty, whether it's Uhura, you know, everyone will have a favourite. And that's just their, their idea for, well, this is what the team is. And every other iteration will have to be compared to that. Now, I know a lot of people prefer Next Generation, and obviously they, they found the same kind of lightning in a bottle there. I know that a lot less people like Voyager, for instance, and that comes down to 
the kind of banter that you have between the crew just isn't quite there because something Star Trek does which you don't really get so much now is it's um, it's episodic TV you know we're used to something very serialized where Star Trek's more they go there they do this they leave and everything kind of ends roughly how it started and without the kind of ongoing plot then it's the fondness that you have for the characters that keeps you coming back to perhaps argue that point say that at the time uh, episodic content or episodic TV shows was the norm and it, as we've progressed I would say that from what I've seen uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine was the first one to really try and serialize uh, the format of the of its of its show and you don't really quite get the same with attempts with Voyager or then the subsequent Star Trek Enterprise. Oh yeah, and I agree with you that um, at the time, episodic TV is what you'd be expecting. You know, people didn't have home videos at this point. There's mm-hmm. not that kind of, let's stream the entire series. Mm-hmm. But I think that means that the older shows have to have this uh, this really concrete crew dynamic because that's what kept yeah. the show, yeah, that's what kept the show alive. Mm-hmm. Same thing with if you're watching Doctor Who, where a lot of the success of this will come down to, well, who are the villains that we have in our rogues gallery and what's the relationship like with the Doctor and the Companion? You know, these are for current elements, and that's the bits that have to be airtight for the show to, to, to function at all, yeah. basically. Anything else you guys want to say at the moment about your uh, personal journeys with Star Trek? I think uh, a lot of that will probably come out over the next few episodes that we do with this. Um, yeah, I agree. But I don't mm-hmm. want to say too much because obviously there's certain eras that are tied to you know each of the films and our experiences mm-hmm. to it, so... Yeah, let's just look forward to seeing what comes out over the next few episodes. Let's just go down down the rabbit hole. So, with that, let's leave our dock and visit Star Trek The Motion Picture. 300 years into the future, to confront the greatest mystery ever to threaten mankind. We are aboard a huge starship called the Enterprise. This is the return of Captain Kirk. An alien object of unbelievable destructive power is less than three days away from this planet. Star Trek, the motionless picture. Oh, wait, (laughs) sorry, did I say that? Yes, this is probably the slowest film in the series. This is only my second time of watching it. And you know what? Personally, I liked this a lot more than I did first time. Now sentence I've never said before and we're not saying any of her context uh, Alistair was there for my first time on the grounds <laughs> that uh, you showed me we well we watched all uh, 13 of them across a period and I think you were a bit like going in you were saying almost apologetically and slightly cautiously this isn't what all of them are going to be like well what occurred to me is that when we're watching the first film and I mean, I'll be honest, the motion picture, it is what it is. It is this strange, unwieldy beast of a movie. And somewhere about halfway through, at the point when the Enterprise has entered the dust cloud that is V'ger, I remember casting an eye your way and this look of horror on your face. <laughs> now, what Penny Drop moment I had is, oh my God, he thinks he's in for 12 more movies just like this one. <laughs> so that must have been quite a daunting experience for you. Luckily, we had the Wrath of Gat to follow up with. Oh yeah, I, um, slight spoilers for later on the show. The jump between this and Wrath of Khan is pretty considerable. 
But at the same time, what I would say is on rewatch, I definitely got more from this one than I previously did. I think the immediate issue we have with it is that there's potentially a good 90-minute film that's kind of forced into a two-hour running time. Like, even from the beginning where we have a blank screen for 100 seconds with just music playing, <laughs> you know, it's going nowhere slowly here. In fact, the journey they make, they don't even need to make anyway because V'ger comes to Earth. But at the same time, on rewatch, what I did appreciate about it is it does the spectacle really well. It deals with the kind of space opera elements pretty well, too. You know, we've got an immediate sense of danger of its present from the beginning, right? For like, all right, we have Kirk and we have Decker here. We don't particularly like Decker, but hey, having an admiral coming in to take over from him, that really sells the gravity here. You know, that really sells the idea that Earth could be fucked. We're having to bring Kirk out of retirement for one last job. You can see him just kind of loving it as he's in his chair, you know, like running his arms along it. That kind of familiar feeling. He's slightly excited about the whole thing. I think that sort of sense of wow when we see space, it does make for some unintentionally funny bits like the four and a half minute docking section where uh, Kirk's saying just beforehand, you know, we have, um, we have like three days, is it, to save the entire world. And then we have to watch this really long, boring <laughs> drive to the ship. But at the same time, the models look great. You know, the effects look pretty cool. And there's something almost quite uh, quite hypnotic about seeing the big sequences there. I absolutely love the model design, all the external shots, all the matte paintings, everything that the camera seems to linger on for about two hours. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it just looks fantastic. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm with David on this. The first time I watched it, I struggled. Uh, in fact, I may have had to have watched it in a couple of sittings because I'm pretty sure I fell asleep during it the first time but yeah it's, it's I don't know something clicked this time around uh, I, maybe I appreciated it a bit more compared to a lot of the uh, CGI shit fests we get these days but yeah the, visually it's a fantastic film mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. yeah I think there is a 90 minute film in there if they sped up all the external shots yeah, every every single little shot we get is just lingering and lingering and oh we're still lingering <laughs> yes it's well i would i would agree that it looks fantastic and of all the versions of star the starship enterprise this one's actually my favorite it all the pieces it makes sense you know what the parts do it looks gorgeous it's a brilliant ship and but what i will say about the docking sequence which lasts about four and a half minutes is it it's unnecessary in that when you watch it and watch the path, that because you got Scotty is in the shuttle pod, and it's him and Kirk heading towards the Enterprise to dock, mm-hmm. and they take the most circuitous, unnecessary route because they're <laughs> approaching up from the left, then they rise up, and then they go over the saucer section, and then they descend, but they don't dock on the right side of the ship or port, they go over back to starboard. So they return to the left side of the ship and then dock on the neck there. And it's like, you were already approaching from starboard. Oh, God, Why yeah. did you circle around the port side and then they, come down to starboard? They take the corner so wide as well. <laughs> <laughs> it 
Yeah, it's, it's so yeah. good to appreciate that lovely model work in Jerry Goldsmith's score, <laughs> yeah. which, by the way, absolutely frazzled me when I first saw this. I was like, oh, wait a second, this isn't, this is a next gen theme tune. What the hell is it doing on the Star Trek film from 10 years prior to it? You know? <laughs> it really blew my mind. <laughs> I think there's maybe a bit of backstory to that. Uh, Gene Roddenberry was very hands on in this movie. And because it wasn't the hit that the studio were wanting, his role was reduced to executive producer for the subsequent films. I think in retaliation, uh, he started focusing on his own TV show. The next generation where he would have a lot more say on the star trek universe and i think he might have used that theme tune as a bit of a statement yeah, fair enough <laughs> i think part of that sequence and i'm about to pay the film a com- another compliment here i think it's because they're aware of the significance to the audience of seeing this reunion something i think they really get with the first movie and in fact the first few movies is that the Starship Enterprise is almost a character unto itself. Yeah. People care about this ship. And I think if you've gone like a decade or so, what is it, how long between them was it? It's like, uh, it's over 10 years between the last episode and then this, well, That's right, right yeah. So I, I think for the audience, that would have been like a really cool thing going, all right, we're seeing our captain back with his ship. Mm. In fact, if anything, the reunion with the crew had a lot less kind of ceremony to it. It was just a kind of, all right, hi. <laughs> I guess you've got that in it, but imagine seeing that on a big cinema screen as well. You know, this mm. TV show that you'd last saw maybe 10 years ago, if it hadn't been repeated, and then you suddenly got this, and you're getting to see the Starship Enterprise on this massive screen in front of you with these incredible visuals. So, yeah, why not take your time and take it all in? It's certainly got cinematic value, this film, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, they do a lot of things that they couldn't do in the show. Like, it doesn't just feel like a long episode like you get with some, like, sitcom movies especially. You know, we've got this scale when they see the entire Enterprise crew. You know, you've got hundreds of extras in that part. And you've got so many of these kind of models. It sells the vastness of space in a way that you just can't really do on TV with the sort Mm. of technology that they had access to. So I think that's definitely, definitely pretty cool. I completely agree with you about the soundtrack as well, by the way. It goes from sheer intensity to these moments of joy and even beauty when you have the string version of the theme. Like, that was fantastically done. Some of it's, uh, like, almost iconic to the show as well. When we see the three Klingon battleships approaching uh, the V'ger dust cloud, that tune has been reused throughout the series as a sort of almost Klingon national anthem, so to speak. It's used as their sort of motif so and, this, and, this, this film did set up a lot of things uh, st- standard and going forward for the franchise and I noticed uh, that they slipped in a bit of the original theme when Kirk was coming onto the bridge and sat down and just getting reacquainted with everything mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. a nice little uh, nod to that in there as well yeah. so let's talk a bit about the characters in this film what do we think of the way the original three are handled? Now, when I was having my first ever viewing of this, and also when I subsequently watched it again, I like the way that Bones is introduced. We have him coming in looking <laughs> like a kind of 70s porn star or like a, a kind of reject beard, beard right? Uh, it looked like he'd awesome. been enjoying retirement at the Playboy Mansion until he yeah. was really old. Yeah, he, yes. 
I could just see him on one of those rotating beds with some green women. <laughs> he immediately doesn't drafted. really give a shit that he's been drafted to a, 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 like a very dangerous, almost certain death mission. He's like, all right. You know, and we've got the immediate kind of technophobia coming in, you know, as he sees the new mm-hmm. medic bay, looks like he's disgusted. We get an immediate feel for who he is. With Spock, you know, we see him doing the ritual or trying to do the ritual when he's not ready to do it yet, where he'd purge himself of all his emotions. In fact, something I would say about V'ger, I don't like the, the conflict with V'ger and Kirk isn't personalised at all, but at the same time, I like that it kind of is with, with Spock. We're able to incorporate Spock's journey of his discussion about whether he wants, his, his conflict, sorry, but whether he wants these emotions or not. And yet it's the human side of him that means he can't identify with V'ger. It's the human side of him that says no to V'ger's plan. Now, V'ger's plan, he doesn't really have one. It's a relatively, like, relatively mindless reason to be killing lots and lots of people, this kind of abstract uh, acquisition of uh, knowledge. And I think he also gets kind of let off too quickly, doesn't he? With like, oh, well, he's now in a, he's now in a beautiful woman's body. So. I think in V'ger's defence, the, the Klingons did attack V'ger first. Um, that there's a number of things I want to say about that sequence. It's redundant because Major wipes out the Klingon ship in quite a scary fashion. They just disappear, and it was a very effectively done sequence. But the same thing happens to the Epsilon Nine station. So there's we're doubling up here. We're establishing the same thing twice. Mm. There's so much. We see this is a could be a ninety minute film. Like I already know exactly which bits I'd be cutting. Um, I would either have the Klingon sequence or Epsilon 9. The Klingon sequence is more fun, so I would just ditch the Epsilon 9 space station getting vaporized. But on the other hand of that, they do establish that that Vija does see it being scanned as a hostile action. Mm. So, you know, it we- does establish, you know, some of the patterns needed you, you could do, you could do both, both you could do both in one scene though i mean i think with the klingons oh, yeah, the, good, the good reason to have the klingons there is to kind of act like hype men you're like very the iconic baddies from the series and vidra just obliterates them it falls into the trap of i mean it's, this will be a next generation reference but if you want to show a villain as being tough you have the villain beat up wharf the Klingons are the tough guys that are constantly getting kicked around by everything else in the galaxy. Yes, it has scanning, has, you know, V'ger interprets as a hostile act. I'd also argue another part that I would remove is that entire wormhole sequence when they first go to warp. Now, I know the point is to show that Decker is more familiar with the new Enterprise than Kirk is. And Kirk and Decker has to countermand an order of Kirk's, but that sequence is so boring. Yeah, and I don't like Decker. It's also done done <laughs> elsewhere too, because we have the bit we've got the uh, transporter, and you've got the little horror sequence. Oh God, yeah, that weird moment of body horror where they're trying to beam aboard a couple of crew members, and it malfunctions and. Yeah, and I guess what you were saying with that that is the technology, you know, Kirk can't just go, all right, well, it was going to do everything I want it to. You know, it shows him out of his depth a little bit here. I suppose suppose with the 
uh, wormhole bit, which I, I think looks really silly. Uh, at least with that, it does directly contribute to the Kirk-Decker dynamic. Hmm. I might still eliminate the transporter sequence. It, 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 it's tonally, it's a jarring note <laughs> in the rest of the film. <laughs> so By bizarre. The way, uh, Jim, I don't know if you remember, when Kirk first appears in this movie, he's on sort of a space tram system. He meets up with a Vulcan yeah. and a Sonak, and they have a quick chat as they're going up the escalators. They have escalators in the future. And he's, I'm going to be at that meeting, I'll be out there in three minutes, and I'm going to be on that ship. I'm going to be on the Enterprise. And Sonak, who I'm convinced, the reason that actor was hired is because he can do a Leonard Nimoy-style eyebrow lift. And of the two people that get minced in the transporters, one of them was uh, Commander Sonak. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think it is mentioned. Also, that sequence was beautifully parodied in the film Galaxy Quest. By the way, that bit where you're seeing him in the... Um, where, 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 he's, where, where, where we're bumping, it, we're bumping into each other in the Federation building, that was another example of cinematic quality. It looked amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those those matte paintings in yeah. all, all the scenes that's fantastic that we see at the beginning on Vulcan as well. Just, oh yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Vulcan, we got Beautiful. such a good sense for it. Like just looked so like nasty, full of dread. Not a place you'd want to spend your summer, basically. <laughs> I, I miss matte paintings. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> they, they bring they bring a certain something to cinema they, that they CGI do. just. Yeah. So this conflict with Decker, it's good that we have it because we have Kirk kind of feeling a bit of the back foot here. Is he as good as he used to be? You know, how does he fit in with this? I wasn't too enamoured with the with, with with the kind of tension, partially because I just didn't really warm to Decker as a character at all. Yeah. I think mm. his relationship with Ela uh, is one of the lesser parts of the movie, and that's saying something because there's a lot of quite bad bits of this movie here. You know, we've got two characters that we don't particularly like, who don't really have a whole lot of chemistry, and we're meant to give a shit about their romance. Like, that just didn't sit well for me. There's one really unintentionally funny bit, right, where uh, Kirk's going to bring Decker up to his office to reprimand him and say, like, how dare you show me up in front of a crew? A kind of display of Kirk's kind of wounded masculine pride Mm -hmm. here, right? And for some reason, Bones goes, can I come too? And he's like, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> why would he possibly have in that scene he doesn't add anything to it by being there it was just a, a strange inclusion I just couldn't get around to it going oh yeah if my boss is going to t- tell me off so they get the medic to join them I thought you were going to mention uh, Leah's uh, announcement when she arrives on the bridge that her vow of celibacy is on record <laughs> and I think I think that's an intentionally comedic bit that Kirk is known for being. I think the term now would be man whore, um, <laughs> and he had his reputation precedes him. But it also establishes that Decker might have liked her, but he got nowhere with her, and neither will Kirk. Uh, and this is another annoying bit, right? So Vijer takes over her body, uh, giving her a uh, needlessly revealing outfit in doing so. And uh, now, it's a troubling bit. Decker gives his life to be with her, but we know that her body's been taken over by Viger, and we know because it's revealed to us beforehand that Viger is a child. Now, 
if we ignore what we know about the actor's personal life, if anyone doesn't know what I'm talking about, go on Wikipedia, it doesn't make for very good romantic tension. Now, does it? Oh, it does. One of the problems I think with the Leah character is before, I mean, she, she is killed. When Vidra probes the bridge, it kills Leah. And by the way, it kills her quite randomly because there's this sort of shaft of light moving across the bridge and it's scanning everything with electric tentacles. And people are shouting out and Spock saying, don't, don't interfere with it, Leave, let it do its thing. And then Spock, as the ships, as Vidra's trying to download like all Starfleet intelligence fleet locations, things like that, Spock then smashes the console and it starts electrocuting Spock. It doesn't kill Spock. It then randomly just turns around and kills Leah. <laughs> so there's no motivation for that to happen. <clears throat> but I find Leah to have effectively undergone no change at all. She's quite a stoic person beforehand. And the robot Leah that replaces her is also very stoic. So there's never any chemistry between those two. But what when I was watching it this time around and realizing that here's an alien that's effectively killed someone and replaced them. Decker loved Leah. Feature mm. killed Leah. Feature then replaced Leah with an identical copy, a robotic copy, but for all intents and purposes, an identical one. Decker now loves Feature. Like, that's just mental. Oh, God, yeah. No, it's a, it's a bit of a needable nightmare, <laughs> this one. Yeah, there was a few moments where some of her conscience came through, if I recall. Um, when she was in sick bay, so perhaps he'd seen, you know, maybe there is still part of her in there, which is why he still goes chasing off. But I guess at the end of the day, it's just a good reason to get rid of him from the ship's crew. <laughs> yeah, I was really surprised when I first saw this. Cause I didn't really have the context for prior episodes because of how much he was in it. I was surprised that he was a new character. I was like, oh, have they been butting heads before? No, never met each other. <laughs> We're just going to watch him for quite a wee while. It's such a contrived sort of way for the, their kind of journey together to end. Like, he's sort of almost cucked by himself. Like, it's yeah. just a strange sort of dynamic that they have there. It, it reminds me of, there's a couple of the Bond films, and one of the Roger Moore ones for sure, I think it's The Spy Who Loved Me, where... In the opening sequence, James Bond will kill one of the baddies' henchmen, and then in the movie, he will bed the missus mm. of the man he killed. And that's essentially what V'ger does in this film. <laughs> like, fundamentally. Like, like Leah's straight up dead. She was vaporised. This uh, <laughs> sort of simulacrum, this duplicate, this thing that only bears some of her memories via proxy through it being a perfect copy, is still functioning as a spokesperson for V'ger. Yeah, Decker's going to spend the rest of, uh, I, I don't know, eternity, I suppose, <laughs> in a relationship with V'ger <laughs> <laughs> in order to access um, V'ger's memories of being attracted to him years prior it's so sad and also again as a reminder V'ger is explicitly identified as a child earlier on in yeah. this movie this is not a good ending for him it's not a good ending for anyone 
I mean, I, I like the sequence for Spock because Spock, this is one of the mysteries behind the Spock character in this film, is that he, of his own volition, rejoins the Enterprise crew. And they're all, of course, happy to see him again. But they raise the question, is he here to help us or is he here for his own uh, means, his own uh, motives and purpose? And he does, obviously, does the Vulcan neck nerve pinch on a member of the crew. And, like, there's surely Spock needs to get chewed out for that because he, he, he knocks out a member of the crew, he steals one of their spacesuits, and off he goes entering further into V'ger than what the Enterprise already has. And this is also against orders. He, you know, he, he has no instruction to go do this. He did it himself. Um, so, but obviously, when you're best mates with the captain, you can get away with all that sort of crap. Yeah, but would it be Spock if he didn't have the opportunity to do the nerve grab at some point? You know, that's that's his signature move. So it <laughs> it's got to be done. <laughs> I, I think, um, yeah, Spock's introduction, uh, well, his second introduction, I suppose, where he just happens to mm. meet up with the Enterprise after their little wormhole incident. It's it's pretty good. I, I like how he doesn't suffer falls at all. Um, yeah, it it yeah. makes for, you know, good interaction with, say, Kirk and Bones. You've just reminded me of something. And this is Decker. Not only is he getting cucked by himself, but everybody else. When uh, Admiral James T. Kirk appears, he says, I'm taking command of the Enterprise. Then when Spock arrives... Okay, so the first Admiral Kirk reduces him to science officer. When Spock arrives, <laughs> Decker is then removed from the role <laughs> of acting science officer. He gets demoted twice. Oh, I'll tell you what Decker reminds me of. You know when he dies at Viendra or gives his life at Viendra, right? So you know the episode of Dark Place where we have the temp, right? And yeah. uh, then the temp <laughs> dies and uh, Rick Douglas is going, you know, we taught each other so much and things, right? As if this is like a big event. And that's what the reactions of the rest of the crew reminded me of. I was like, it doesn't matter how you do this, you're not going to make me care about this dude. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so... Thought we, we, with the interactions of the characters, there was good moments there, but yeah. out of the two-hour film, I'd be surprised if there was like even half an hour of dialogue in it. Like Most of what they said seemed to be leaning towards the sort of let's do this and then this will happen sort of kind of functional stuff. Like There was a couple of nice exchanges, and that's something that really gets built upon in the next movie. But I didn't think there was quite enough, uh, definitely not enough, uh, dramatic human interest elements to it. You know, I didn't think we really got much of a journey. I know there was a bit of middle-aged malaise with Kirk, but at the same time, I, I don't think it was really explored. I kind of liked his almost sexual arousal at flying the ship again, but at the same time, I didn't think we got enough of a kind of idea for what his life is like outside the ship. And that's something that Wrath of Khan really brings up with the idea of his promotion to Admiral. It's not really been good for him. It's what he mm -hmm. worked towards, but it's also just... Not what he wants. Yeah, I think it's Kirk's sort of stories gets the most development here. Uh, I mean, Chekhov, Sulu, Ahura get nothing to work with. Mm -mm. All we get is, uh, I suppose, bitching and moaning from Scotty. Uh, we've, we've spent 18 months upgrading the ship. 
she's still not ready. We, we leave in three hours. <laughs> it's that sort of thing, um, giving the engineer a headache. With Spock, he's certainly got um, something to do, possibly more so than McCauley this time around. He's... Yeah, I'd agree with that. I did think there's a bit of a, a bit too much of an obvious red herring, though, that I don't think anyone watching it would reasonably assume that Spock's about to betray the entire crew in the first oh, no. film. <laughs> no, that's that's just ridiculous. He's not even him nerve pinching uh, another member of the crew was out of character for him. Uh, he'd never do that in the show. He does it the next film. To be fair, he d- he does it to McCoy at the end. I would say that's different. That's arguably extenuating circumstances. We'll get on to Rathacan mm-hmm. shortly, but uh, that would lead on to the movie Search for Spock. So we have to set the groundwork, the seeds for that somehow. Um, no, it's, it's the Spock of this TV series and motion picture. Just, he shouldn't have been neck pinching someone. He should have had a conversation with Kirk. Give me a spacesuit. Let me go out there. And Kirk might have initially disagreed, but maybe with a persuasive argument might have come round to it. And that would have actually offered more dialogue. That could that whole sequence could have been done better. Yeah, and a bit more attention, a bit more drama, basically. Oh, yeah, I, f- I think that's what it was for, because up to this point, other than Vija killing one of the crew and taking her body as a vessel, what really has happened apart from, well, and, and the wormhole incident, you know, we've basically just been floating around looking at massive external shots, maybe having the odd trip here and there. That um, sequence goes on for so long. <laughs> oh, God, absolutely. It's another long drawn sequence. The, the camera's on the faces of the bridge crew looking out the window. The camera then turns to some formation of clouds. Crew. Clouds, yeah, crew, yeah. clouds, on and on it goes. As soon as you get to Vija, it's a, it's boring. Yeah, that that's that's it, isn't it? It's like we as soon as we get to the destination, the film grinds to a halt, and something needs to happen. Any, anything. <laughs> I, I get the whole point of it taking forever for Enterprise to get to the center of the Vija cloud is to show how big this is. But you get the point quite early on. <laughs> yeah. Like, you really get the point. I actually would see a bit more exploration, because essentially they leave, they go through a wormhole, and they end up at V'ger. They They go through a wormhole because that's a false start for the warp engine, because mm. they weren't ready to go. Then they warp to V'ger, then they're in V'ger, V'ger continues on course to Earth, and then they're back at Earth. So yeah. it's, it's like um, Mad Max Fury Road, where they go out in one direction, turn round and go back the complete opposite direction. <laughs> also, what gets me is that we have to use the Enterprise because it's the it's the nearest ship. You got to remember, Vigor's coming through Klingon space and then entering Federation space. Earth is at the heart of the Federation, and from the edge of Federation space to Earth, there's just the one ship. That's all you've got. Yeah, it's no, it's no good. It feels too much like an obvious plot hole. With the main conflict, something I didn't like about the last act, and this is also something that you wouldn't get in, say, a Star Wars movie, or in fact a lot of the sequels like the one we're going to be talking about next, 
It's a way that we don't have a battle. We have a puzzle. And a puzzle needs to be solved, and that basically takes up the last half hour. Yeah, I think it was pretty bold, to be fair. I mean, this is coming in the shadow of Star Wars. You know, this film that took the baton from Jaws in terms of what blockbusters are now expected to be like, and then they come along with this pondering, gloomy <laughs> space sci-fi where it's, you know, it's, as, it's, as philosophical as anything else. And This is one of the wonders of the motion picture because <laughs> Star, Star Wars was that runaway success. The studio are like, yeah, we want... What properties do we have that are science fiction? Let's cash in on the success. And they say to the Star Trek people, we want a Star Wars hit. Want a Star Wars hit? We gave you 2001 a Space Odyssey. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's clearly what we're trying to do. We're trying to make, like, a sort of, like, art rather than making something that's kind of fun. But the thing is, we're not Stanley Kubrick. And... You know, whilst there are definitely some moments of beauty in there, I just don't think the, the basic story holds well together. Mm -hmm. I, there's just not enough... There's just not enough of anything, really. There's not enough conflict. There's not enough tension. You know, we've not really got enough uh, set pieces. It's just kind of this quite unsatisfying riddle. And, you know, as we get more about... all right. Luke, you've got an annoying character's body's been taken over by another annoying character. What do you make of this situation? I didn't think there was enough of a kind of moral dimension or like moral... There wasn't really enough of a moral decision behind the whole film. It, and there wasn't really enough what are the pros and cons of doing this behind it, which is something we have by the buttload in uh, Wrath of Khan. So it's... As much as I can appreciate it as a, as a technical achievement, I just don't think it's a very good film. They basically keep getting their options whittled down to we can only do this one thing. Like when the, the feature probe is on the bridge and they're discussing, well, and they all, you know, let's clear the bridge. They're all threatening to walk away and leave V'ger without the information. Like that's fairly basic negotiating. And it's the weak hand thing that they said. And they discussed this in front of V'ger. They discussed the the tactic they're going to plot play in front of Vigian. And they also have Quinn Kirk standing at the actual Voyager 6 satellite, and he says V-G-E-R, and then he spells out Voyager 6, and it all feels a bit Sesame Street. Mm. <laughs> Sesame Street with a hint of encounters, of strange encounters of the third kind, I think it is, with the sound effects of the... I don't know, what is it? That, close uh, encounters! Close yeah. encounters. Well, the sound effects when they're at satellite, that like the bending cardboard thing that an Australian musical instrument. Oh, yes, yeah. Uh, that, the wibbly wobbly board yeah, or whatever it is. I, I don't want to bring up Roth Harris, but uh, <laughs> that thing that he would do, like you get those sound effects and then the sound effects happen, but at no point where they're ever determined to be any form of communication. It's mm. just noises that uh, Vidra is making and all communication is still going through Ilea, but she becomes very sort of tight-lipped at that point. I, I did think Vidra's like, origin story was semi-interesting, but yeah, I, I think it's just a bit like Outer Space. Felt very big and empty. You know, for, 
There's an element of this in Contact where Jodie Foster goes to visit the aliens only to find out that it's her dad. And there's an element like, what could a disappointing answer be? Like, finding out that this big threat that's looming over Earth, oh, it's just a Voyager 6 probe. Like, <laughs> it, how do you sell that in a way that's not anticlimactic? Yeah, I guess it's kind of neat, uh, especially back when it was made, because it is something that, well, that exists, you know. Um, it's it's a massive sci-fi film, but the big threat is of our own making, I suppose. Um, and to to have something that was actually sent into space in reality as the villain, as if you can save Eija as a villain. Uh, I, I guess there was kind of a neat twist. I mean, I think Vidra you could qualify as a villain. I thought one of the things that was actually a bit of a bit of a fuck off, really, was when at the end we're saying, oh, yeah, do we announce these two as being, like, casualties, like, <laughs> missing in action or whatever? You're kind of oh, understanding yeah. what's just happened. No, Aaliyah is definitely a casualty. Yeah, she You can died. say Decker's missing in action, but Leah's definitely a casualty. Yeah, like, you know, Decker chose this life. Uh, it chose his life to end like that. She certainly didn't. It, the ending of this film does sort of mirror uh, the space odyssey, and at the very end of that film, we get a star child. And in this one, there's the merging of the two to become a new and different entity, whatever whatever that may be. I did, I did find... Uh, Vidra to be sort of needlessly genocidal. So yeah. the the danger orbs that come out of Vidra and then surround Earth, and Vidra's threatening to destroy the planet unless she gets the information she wants. I mean, that's like what in the future, what twenty billion people on planet Earth, and no time for evacuation. It's like nobody's got time for that. Mm. Yeah, and that's the thing. When Decker's like, ah, I want to spend the rest of eternity shacking up with Vidra, you're like, hold on. Vidra was about to blow up an entire planet. Like, not, not just any planet, your planet. Yes, yes. She's going to wipe out your species. It's like uh, spoilers for uh, Star Wars Episode Nine when <laughs> they suddenly decide they're going to try and make Kylo Ren a romantic prospect again, despite that he's committed multiple acts of genocide during the course of the trilogy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, for that moment, Ray's like, ah, oh, yeah, but he's pretty hot. Right? <laughs> well, if, if Anakin Skywalker can do it in the prequels. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're just like, no, this, this this doesn't compute at all. It would be like if we see Padme uh, meeting Anakin at the end of episode six, for some reason she survived, and they're like, you know, that's Anakin Skywalker and the Darth Vader outfit blowing everything up. She's like, I can change him. You know, that's, <laughs> that's kind of the equivalent. Anyway, so... If only how, she didn't die of sadness. How many stars are we going to give Star Trek the motion picture? Personally, I think this is a two-star film. And that's being relatively generous because there's a lot of good stuff towards the beginning and it looks amazing. I just really wish it got in a different direction for most of the second half of it. But at the same time, there's definitely an aesthetic pleasantness about it. The production values are good. And, yeah, as Jim said, it does something quite bold. It's quite ambitious. It isn't just doing, 
here's a standard episode of the show that's been stretched out, like uh, one of the upcoming sequels, but I won't say which one quite yet, although it'll be, in fact, you're probably all thinking of exactly the same one. That sequel feels like a double episode or triple episode that's just been put onto the big screen. This felt like a film, just not a particularly good one. So yeah, I think this is two stars. What about yourself, Alistair? I think I'm going to be the same two stars. It's amazing soundtrack, visually stunning, to an extent. I, one thing I'll mention just quickly is the uniforms, the space mm-hmm. pajamas they have in this mm-hmm. particular film. Not a fan, not a fan. But the uniforms they have from Wrath of Khan onwards, much better. It looks more like what you'd expect from uh, an organization called Starfleet. Wasn't a fan of that particular uh, aesthetic choice, but a lot of everything else did look fantastic. Not to say great soundtrack, but the film is poorly paced. There's some good characterization and intrigue, but not enough. There's this is a film that's essentially shot to ribbons with its own weaknesses and flaws, and it, it can overcome them. Two stars. Feels right. I'll go two stars. What about you, Jim? Four stars! Well, you know. No, um, I'm, I'm <laughs> going to go with three, actually, because I actually really did enjoy the first hour. I mm. thought it was great. A great reintroduction to all the characters, just uh, as we've mentioned, the models, the sets the map paintings, the effects, everything just went together. Even the bizarre moments like uh, Dr. McCoy stepping off the transporter in his sex cult outfit and the the weird transporter malfunction body horror, just little moments like that just were absolutely bizarre but also really great. But it's that second half of the film that just slows right down and just weighs the rest of it down. It's so boring really. And as Alistair mentioned, the, the uniforms and, and the interior sets as well were just so sterile. There was no life about it. <laughs> Which, like a lot of the second hour of this film, it just fell flat. Uh, its trajectory was going up and up and up, and then as soon as we get to Vija, it just, just plummets. So, yeah, for, for the first half um, alone, I'll give it three stars. Overall, not necessarily a beloved movie by the team. Let's move on to The Wrath of Khan. Beyond the darkness, beyond the human evolution, is Khan, a genetically superior tyrant, exiled to a barren planet, banished by a starship commander he is destined to destroy. Left for dead, he has survived. The Wrath of Khan. Folks, I reckon if you look at a jump in quality between two sequels, you will never find a bigger leap than the one that is made between these two movies. The Wrath of Khan is a relatively small scale story, certainly smaller scale than we see first time around, but it's such a personalised one. This is a really good story about obsession about the need for revenge, and it has one of the best villains in science fiction. I absolutely love this film. And uh, as a sequel to the hit episode Space Seed, you wouldn't 
you know, from the beginning, it's clear there's a kind of magnetism about this guy. Even Volcan at that point's kind of portrayed as being a bit of a uh, bit of a sleaze, almost like a space equivalent of a pickup artist. At the same time, there's an intensity about the performance and an intelligence about the character that we just want to see him again. And this is such a good, uh, this is such a good return for him. You know, basically, I think this is a great movie. Let's talk about it. Al, what do you think of Ralph McCann? Love it. Uh, five stars. Sorry, I meant to work up to that. Uh, <laughs> that <yeah>. That's a <laughs> stunt. <laughs> I absolutely love this film. And um, for watching it again, I watched uh, the original episode Space Seed as well. And it, it, on the one hand, it functions as a really good sequel to that episode. But you don't need to watch that episode to get why Khan is angry with Kirk. It's all spelled out here. And it's it, every decision everyone makes makes sense. It all just one scene beautifully leads into the next. I think from the motion picture to Rathacan, there is a retread of Kirk being, um, I don't want to be an admirable, I want to be a captain. And it's done here so much better than it was in the previous film. And you've got a great singular villain with a great motivation that uh, his own his own crew don't uh, always support. Mm. Kirk with his crew and the trainees. And that's a very, like, that works really well. Although I might just point out that I don't think it's an intended plot hole, but we know from the motion picture that you know, they've spent time refurbishing the Enterprise, 18 months to give it all the latest fandangled advancements that science has to offer. We know that from Picard's time, his Enterprise was the flagship of the fleet. And in the J.J. Abrams movies, that Enterprise was the flagship of the fleet. I say that because Kirk's Enterprise was never fully identified as the flagship of the fleet, I think there's enough evidence to suggest that it probably is the flagship of Starfleet. With that said, they take the, the best, the flagship, the most advanced ship of the fleet, they refurbish it for 18 months, and then they hand it over to trainees. I'm ruling out V'ger here because Starfleet wasn't expecting V'ger. So the first thing they plan to do with it is hand it over to trainees. That's like the US Navy handing over their finest capital aircraft carrier to trainees <laughs> uh, it's an odd choice mm. but it's it's done so well in this movie the, there's a lot at stake there and Kurt knows that he's he's got a crew that you know haven't been tried or tested in the field so he's got to uh, as he says in the movie they have to grow up fast I like seeing Chekhov. We see more of Chekhov in this film. He's given something to do. He plays a part. And I always like the Chekhov character. And I think he's one of the characters that gets sort of um, sidelined quite a lot. Uh, in this film, not so much. He's, what is he, the second in command of the USS Reliant? Mm. So it makes sense that he's the one, and he can link the bridge to the Enterprise in getting... Uh, can luring Kirk back. Uh, am I right in thinking that Chekhov wasn't actually in the Space Seed episode, however? I know exactly where you're going with that. Correct. I'll let you 
Well, uh, no, I was just going to say, because I, I also watched Space Seed before watching this one as well. And obviously it's Chekhov and his captain that go down mm-hmm. to Seti Alpha 5 to, you know, see what this life form is. And when he notices it's the Botany Bay, and I'm like, oh, wow, that's, you know, that's a good moment. But then mm-hmm. I realized that, well, well you weren't actually, you never actually <laughs> had any interaction with Khan whatsoever and weren't present for any of his misdeeds previously. So why would this, you know, ring such a chord with you? <laughs> it's funny. And apparently at conventions, Walter Koenig has said that uh, to explain this um, continuity snafu, he said that... Uh, Chekhov was on board the Enterprise, but he wasn't in any scenes of that episode. And uh, he kept Khan waiting overly long to use the toilet. <laughs> so that's a little humorous explanation for that. And I, it might as well be canon, you know. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, just just the, when they meet, it's fantastic. It doesn't, you know, it could, he might as well not have even been in Star Trek before. But yeah. the. F- just how good that meeting is between the two of them. Yeah. The resentment coming mm. to the fore from Khan. And, well, he physically grabs yeah. him and lifts him up yeah. by his spacesuit. It's I so was absolutely good. confused for as to why Starfleet didn't already have a record of a completely deserted planet. I was like, come on. They, they must have, like... <laughs> A map at this point that features them. We've been doing this sort of thing for years. But with um, with Khan, once he comes into it, something that I really liked about this film, and so much of his success just comes down to him as a character, right, is he's got a good motivation. You know, he's got this thing where he feels shafted by Kirk, because Kirk's like, all right, we'll send him off down to, down to an uninhabited planet. And then, you know, doesn't check in to make sure that he's all right after that. Yeah. He's got a good reason to want this guy dead. He's got a good thing, good sort of motivation to, 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 push, to push him towards revenge. It's a much more concrete story than what we have the first time around because it's relatable. You know, we, we don't necessarily think that Khan's a good guy because he isn't, right? But at the same time, we can still understand the logic that's pushing him here. Khan, consistently in the first, in the first time we saw him, he, was always, he always had to be smarter than Kirk. He had to be smarter than everyone else here. And that's why he's an effective villain. I think Kirk managed to beat him. Have you got that bizarre sequence where he gashes everyone and for some reason Shatner's ego makes sure that Kirk doesn't fall for rest. <laughs> you see he's still up. He falls and then, down last. Yeah, finally falls down last. But then when he, you know, he comes out and uh, they have that silly fight with the obvious stunt double, right? In the very, very <laughs> deserted room. Not making, you know, there's, they're not really taking advantage of that space. But point is... Can, as a villain, there's a logic, there's a reason he's doing all this, and it's something that we can identify with. I say it's fair to say that he's he's a bad guy that has been done wrong. And in that he feels completely justified in his vengeance. Yeah, we find out that the historian, the 20th century historian, for some reason has a gladiator in her uh, in her office, you're like. That wasn't 20th century, pal. She's not a great historian. But point no, is, no. <laughs> um, uh, point is, though, that like we find out that she died as well. She died off screen, and that's also going to be motivating Can. I believe there was the point that Can was meant to have a, a son at one point, right? Which we've got that guy who essentially stands in for a son, the young guy, 
Yes. Which would be a uh, kind of a parallel to what we have with uh, with Kirk, with him him also now being a father figure in it. We sort of have a cake and eat it with that, though, because with Kirk, he's going, oh, I have to choose between having a family and, like, star hopping. And then later he's like, I think I might just star hop with my son. And yeah, he found a third way. The, uh, the Bill Clinton uh, of space. But, but uh, Jim, James Kirk, as he says in the film, he hates to lose. But I think where's the real tragedy to this film, right, is uh, with Khan. Khan's, his team, his crew, they have a ship they can leave. Yeah. And yeah. he absolutely, just his absolute selfishness and this need to get back at Kirk, he completely, like, screws all of them over here. You know, these guys will follow him to the ends of the galaxy here. They love the guy. And at the same time, you know, as a cult leader there, he's obviously got an ability to kind of manipulate them, have them do his will. But at the same time, I also don't think he's a psychopath. You know, there's enough in him that he grieves when that young guy dies, for instance. You know, I, I, I don't think it's that he doesn't care about them. It's just that he has this fixation. And there's clearly a better life he can have access to. You know, you're like, all right, Let's uh, you know. Let's go find or make our own planet, right? And uh, we can all just go off and live happily ever after. You know, we're no longer stuck in this desert where there's just constant sandstorms all the time. But no, his his obsession, his selfishness, it just screws over all of them. I feel bad for Khan's entire crew in this, and almost yeah. sort of him because he has a good motive and he could have a happy life, but he's also his own worst enemy. Yes, yes, that's a very good point. He is definitely his own worst enemy. He, he as soon as he got the Starship Reliant, he he could have gone anywhere, done whatever he wanted, but he had to engage uh, Kirk and Bal. And obviously, Kirk being the more experienced of the two, uh, the first, I mean, there's scenes in this film which are just lightning in a bottle for me and that first showdown between Kirk and Khan when Kirk doesn't know it's Khan yet and he hasn't raised his shields by the way there's a lot of fuss being made in this film about raising and lowering shields shields are never on when weapons are being fired (laughs) Kirk doesn't raise his Khan's gets lowered without his permission and then they go into this uh, the Mutara Nebula where nobody can raise shields at all so shields are never actually on but uh, when Khan catches Kirk completely by surprise, like just blindsides him, cripples the Enterprise, and he wants Kirk to beam over, and he wants all of the data pertaining to Genesis. And he, he basically wants a functioning WMD at his disposal. Mm-hmm. But how do you interpret this? Is, is he wanting to have it? As a weapon, or is because I was thinking he's wanting it because it could also be used for creation purposes. I think uh, this is making a, a forging a new homeworld. Yeah, basically. that that definitely could be. That's probably the more likely of the two uh, motives. But as Spock said in the conference meeting with himself, Kirk, and McCoy, that whatever is there on the planet already would be utterly destroyed in favor of the new matrix that. Uh, Genesis lays onto the planet. So if everything on the planet's getting wiped out, that could effectively serve as a WMD. But um, 
it as for purposes of colonization, it's definitely got its advantages there, and you can see why someone like Khan would want that. And I think it's also established in dialogue that on the regular one space station, the scientists there destroyed their work rather than letting handing it over to Starfleet. I have a wee question, right? So Khan in this is wanting to get the Genesis data. Now, he already has members from the uh, Reliant under his control. Would they not already know where the data is, as opposed to having to go through Kirk, who would know less about it than they would? I mean, the only way that I can make this make sense is the kind of Moby Dick thing that we're doing here, which we also quote Moby Dick and show yeah. the books, so they're, they're really drumming into this one. That, you know, it's... It's just, it's still this idea of the great white, you know. He, I I guess part of it is maybe maybe that the way the reason he wants to include Kirk in this is so Kirk knows he's been beaten. And in fact, actually, that's another really good moment. One of my favorite bits of this film is that Khan dies thinking he's won. Mm-hmm. Like he when he's pushing the button, he's using his uh, literally using the nuclear option. You know, he's smiling. And he's like, "That's it. I've done exactly what I said to do." He gets a happy ending despite that his entire crew are dead. And uh, he himself is about to die, but it's this just again, it's this I must get Kirk. Aha, that's me one sort of moment. At the expense of his entire crews and his people. Yeah, not to go on about this, but there really is such a, like, there is that kind of fatal flaw. There's just a bit of tragedy to this guy. You know, it is like the uh, sort of kind of Shakespearean tragedy of you've got this powerful man with one huge problem in his personality. And uh, it's what brings him down, you know, is with how you could take Othello and Hamlet, put them into each other's situations, and each one would resol- resolve it perfectly. Where, where we have him, this need for revenge with Kirk, it's exactly the wrong problem for the situation he's in, since he could just fuck off about 20 minutes in. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad he doesn't, because it's a great film, but yeah. You, you said it right at the beginning. Uh, it's It's very intelligent. I think it's probably one of the more intelligent science fiction films of its era. You know, we're talking the first five or six years of the blockbuster era coming in. And, you know, this it's still, like the script and everything, just still astonishes me how good it is. Um, uh, Yeah, it's quite cynical in places and is probably one of few big blockbusters I've seen where going on to the uh, scientists, for example, the cynical of Starfleet, uh, they don't want them to get hold of Genesis to repurpose it for their own ideals, you know, weapons, that sort of thing. I haven't seen anything similar to that in any other big films like this. Do you know, that was an interesting point to bring up, like sort of the civilian's distrust of the military, I think, is that what that's meant to be, that distrust of Starfleet. And like when the... USS Reliant heads right towards the scientists on the regular one stage. Like, we weren't expecting you for another, like, 10 months. What, what are you doing here? Go away. <laughs> yeah, and where, where I guess most big gung-ho blockbusters is you know, pro-military and so on, whereas having a film of this stature raising questions like that, especially for its era, you know, yeah. is, is really good. And, yeah, yeah, especially it's such an optimistic property in general as well, because they do that with some of the later sequels, without commenting on, on the quality of any of them right now. There is uh, two sequels I can think of where they kind of question the integrity of the 
you know, their military industrial complex, essentially. They question the integrity of the Galactic Federation. And that's and that's quite bold considering that that's who we're following, that they're that yeah. the, the team we're following are upkeeping the uh, order of the Galactic Federation. Especially when you look at the TV shows and being part of the Federation is a good thing. There's nothing but benefits, mm. apparently. But yeah, to see it from this point of view, it, yeah, it just was a really good direction. Um, and again, getting back to Khan and Kirk's rivalry, I suppose, again, very intelligently done, very methodical and calculated as well. I know we've got the odd hero moment and Kirk doing double bluffs and so on, such yeah. as repairs by the book and that sort of thing. But yeah, again, the back and forth and just the script in general seems, yeah, it's just great considering this is a big blockbuster film. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, I, there's so much I do love about this film. I just want to touch for a second on just the, the ships as well. It was initially going to be like another ship, the same class as the Enterprise. And they actually changed the Reliant to be a, to be a visually different ship so the audience wouldn't be confused as to which ship was uh, with which captain, Khan or Kirk. Well, I mean, that, that probably is for the better because especially in the Maelstrom, <laughs> that, that would have just got confusing because yeah, yeah. you know, it's quite visually dull. As it is. I've heard it said that the fight scenes or the, the space battles between the two ships are quite slow-paced, but actually, I really like them. There's thought put into it and how it works. When they're in the Mutara Nebula, the Kirk's plan is to lower the ship and then to try and sneak up behind, uh, you know, the rear of the USS Reliant, which he succeeds at doing twice, mm. and a second time to far greater success. Yeah, that... On rewatch, it that part did seem to fly by a lot quicker than I remember. Uh, I've seen this a couple of times previously, but yeah, yeah it just seemed to that that whole finale just went by so swiftly. It's Sorry, so Nebula. Tense. Yeah, I got that yeah. wrong earlier. <laughs> That's okay. It's a wonderful kind of naval kind of battle. You know, it's yeah. a wonderful sort of yeah, it's slow, but just like the first time, we feel every single hit. Mm-hmm. We care about the Enterprise as a character. Seeing the Enterprise getting blown to bits, it has an impact. And because of the, the first scene of the trainees, it stretches credibility that an yeah. admiral <laughs> would ever train, the, uh, would, ever, would ever be involved in the training. At the same time, because we bring in the impossible situation uh, this paradigm thing, right, then it allows them to sell that these are life or death decisions and it also allows them to sell the vulnerability of the Enterprise. And then when we see it come out the first battle, I mean, you know, you say, well, Khan is the less experienced of the two. He's also kind of got a better ship. So it manages to sort of even this up. I mean, Kirk never feels like he's going to be, uh, oh yeah, he's going to absolutely batter him or anything like that. You know, feel, I suppose what we have with Khan is we have the uh, titular Wrath, which maybe he's more motivated to kill here. For him, this is uh, this is more personal than it is for Kirk. And I think I think they seem equivalently matched. You know, it's anger versus experience here. And what I like as well, there's something I want to talk about in this film compared to the motion picture, is that sometimes higher stakes don't always lead to a better story. Because obviously in motion picture, we have Viger threatening the entire population of the planet Earth. 
in this film, in Wrath of Khan, Khan's only one to kill Kirk and all of yeah. his crew. I mean, he's threatening, what, 400 people? Or 200 people? It might even be a skeleton crew. It's, you know, it, the stakes are so much lower, but it's such a more rewarding movie experience. Yeah, I, I absolutely hate to be paraphrasing Stalin, but this but this <laughs> applies, right? You say, you know, the quote of, was it, one death's a tragedy, a million's a, million is a statistic, right? And where you have instances where the whole world's being threatened on screen... We don't, you know, we can't really personalise that so much because, yeah. you know, it's like, all right, seven billion people are going to die. You go, fuck, does that, how does that even look like? Whereas the idea that Kirk, Spock and McCoy can die, there's a drama to that. Mm. You know, and it's, there's, a, there's a sense of threat to that, basically. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, their relationships were so much better in this one than they were in the first movie. Yeah. I think the heart-to-heart conversation at the beginning between McCoy and Kirk, that's some of the strongest material of any of these movies here. You know, when he's saying, like, you don't want to become part of the collection. Kirk's yeah. got these ab- absolutely beautiful digs that he's living in. But at the same time, he's just a bit bored. I did like uh, McCoy bringing in Romulan Ale, this, uh, what we can assume is a very expensive uh, spirit there, despite Ale, it looks like we have it in uh, drams. And then immediately pours himself one as well. I was like, oh, that's bad guest etiquette. I mean, he, I'm sure Kirk would give him one. But anyway, point is, though, that scene, I thought, gave a lot of depth to their uh, relationship. We had an implied past with them. And it also was a film acknowledging that, Luke, this is, this is now the uh, early 1980s. The show was the 1960s. They're different people now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, well, ageing is a theme that recurs throughout, isn't it? Going back to the... Uh, length in time between the film and the TV show. It feels like that exact same length of time between the first and this film. The set design, the wardrobe, everything just feels years and years and years ahead of the motion picture. It's yeah. quite unbelievable that there's only a three-year gap between us. And, and, well, it just sets it out in the first scene, uh, the, the Kobayashi Maru training section, which you know, everyone really goes all in on the drama as well, considering yeah. it's just a training exercise. Oh, yeah, they, they, they stick to the bit. <laughs> oh, that, that sequence was heavily used for the trailer. Look, here's all your favourite characters dying. <laughs> and you can chop it together with uh, the Enterprise getting pounded by Khan's ship. Oh, yeah, very clever. And then uh, you've One got... Thing... Sorry, Sorry. Go I want to be just very quickly before I forget... When Khan, at the beginning of the film, he unveils himself, he takes the veil off, he takes the visor off. We watch him take off one of his gloves, finger by finger. He takes off that glove. He never takes off the other glove for the entire film. He's Michael Jacksoning his way through the whole film. <laughs> <laughs> but he pulls it off. The acting, not the glove. <laughs> so, uh, Jim, what were you going to say a moment ago? I was just going back to the uh, opening training moment where it does feel like we are in the middle of maybe a third act from a previous film. Mm, uh, yeah. the, the crew is in peril. The, the bridge is taking hits left, right and centre. The crew are flailing over the you know, desks and so on. And all of a sudden, it's like a big game show and through the big doors... <laughs> 
walks through Kirk, and everyone's just like, oh, okay, and gets up. <laughs> it's just such it's... a weird moment. I remember the first time I saw this film, everyone's dying, but then the screen moves aside, and Kirk, the, the sort of silhouette of Kirk, the shadow streaming through the smoke, and I remember thinking, what is going on here? <laughs> It sets an immediately darker tone as well, which is very welcome. Yeah. You know, I mean, this yeah. is essentially a film about people facing uh, facing death. You know, we see the idea that it's a bit of a fuck off to Viger. Kirk mentions this is the first time that he's ever been scared that he might die. And we have that nice quote: uh, "How we face death is at least as important as uh, how we face life." But there's a lot of quite nice quotes like that. You know, the needs of the many always outweigh the needs mm-hmm. of a few. Does that? Is that the series as well, or is this its first outing? This is its first time it gets said. It's in this film. Uh, there's a lot that I like about this film. Sort of the, the older cast, the trainees, the young people coming in to take over. We start with the training scenario, the no-win scenario, uh, which Kirk cheated to win. And obviously we get to the very end of the film where when Khan's activating Genesis, he has put the Enterprise in an actual no-win scenario that Spock sacrifices himself to save everyone else. Oh, yeah, and let's talk about that sequence. That was, an, that was a, a really good bit. I mean, do you think, from the, at the time this came out, before people would have had, like, IMDb and loads of hit movie websites like horrorcultfilms.co.uk, yeah. <laughs> then... Uh, you wouldn't necessarily have the same kind of rumour mill of, like, would fans reasonably have thought that at the end Spock was dead? Or the fact that he shot onto the Genesis planet, would that would that kind of make people assume it's a happy ending? Because it is quite life-affirming for Kirk. You know, he almost has, like, a whole new reason to live despite that his best friend just kicked a bucket. I, I would suggest possibly not. You know, I think that would have... Unless once the film's premiered and word of mouth hits... Town, maybe, but uh, no, without IMDb or Wikipedia, without your net sources, I don't think people knew that Spock was going to die. So I think that seemed to hit as a real gut punch the first time around. Oh, yeah, oh yeah, maybe I phrased it badly, but do you think they would know that he's coming back? Or like, that that's just it? I would suggest not until they heard the title of the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> but even, even in the knowledge that it's kind of a red herring, I guess. Yeah. It still hits pretty hard. I mean, that that whole sequence of him talking to Kirk through the glass door and the send-off with Scotty playing the bagpipes for some reason. I, I don't know why he would. But... <laughs> uh, that is one sort of, I would say, uh, stereotypical Scottish thing. That if you're Scottish, you're always wearing a kilt. You always eat haggis. And you know how to play the bagpipes. Yeah, I would have liked if you just shit at it. <laughs> Kirk with his, uh, what I think would nowadays be called a microaggression, where he says, you know, his soul is the most human. <laughs> I guess it was meant very nicely. Well, but, yeah. I've got to say about that bit. It's replicated in Batman versus Superman. At the end, when Superman has his funeral, they're playing the same tune on the bagpipes. And really? It, it moved me, not because Superman was dead, but because it reminded me of the end of Wrath of Khan. Because <laughs> I can't watch that bit without getting all misty-eyed. It just absolutely floors me every time. 
That's kind of a sad indictment on Zack Snyder's Batman versus Superman. Yeah, it's probably not the worst, bit, to be fair. The most it's... emotional bit of that film evoked an emotional scene from a completely different film with nothing to do with. Yeah, it creates so much work at They go, Jim's like, it reminds me of Star Trek. <laughs> um, Scotty, that bit where Scotty randomly shows up on the bridge of an injured man. <laughs> Did he get lost uh, on the way to sick, mate? Well, <laughs> if we were to speculate on possible solutions to the plot, well, the turbo lifts had stopped working and maybe just went to the wrong destination. I know why it was filmed that way, because they've fired back at Khan, they've disabled his ship, Khan's ship retreats to make repairs. Kirk's like, right, we've just gotten ourselves out of a sticky situation, and let's see how badly we're, we're hit. And it's meant to be that visual. I mean, this is one of the scenes in the film. It's a very intellectually put together film, rather can. But this is one of those emotional scenes where they use the emotion to really override the logic and what it makes sense. And mm. the door's part there, Scotty holding a badly injured uh, member of the trainee engineering staff. And why would you take him to the bridge and not medical? And as I pointed out to David as well, the engineering is at the bottom of the ship. The bridge is at the top. Scotty certainly took the scenic route to get to medical <laughs> in that scenario. And he timed Scotty, timed it perfectly by uh, Kirk's trying to rile up the spirits and everyone on the bridge. Let's see how badly we're hurt. And then he appears with his injured... Uh, and in the, I believe it would have been his nephew. There's deleted scenes that reference that uh, that member of the crew was actually a uh, relation. Yeah, I don't know why the fuck they cut that, because it, it adds a bit more yeah. depth to the whole thing, like the bit where we see them down, and they finally reach the medic bay, you know, and it's a bit like, I guess it's meant to be Kirk thinking this is the cost of if we continue and fail, more people are going to die, right? Yeah. And um, I suppose even thinking, even if we win, people are going to die for this, right? And... You lose something, but it just seems like Scotty's just grown attached to this guy. Whereas if he, we know he's his relative, yeah, it makes sense why Scotty would be like this. You know, we like Scotty. We don't want to see yeah. Scotty lose a relative. It, uh, I mean, it, he is emotional. When James Doohan's delivering that line that he stayed at his post, even when the other trainees ran, you feel that. I mean, that's almost mm. his Spock eulogy moment, if you will. Um, you, you feel there the, the sadness coming through, and it does add something. If it's just instead of this just being his favorite pupil, his star student, that it's also a relative as well. Mm. It does yeah. add that extra layer. And there probably would have been more of a profound moment had he not just appeared on the bridge at this exact coincidental time. Yeah. <laughs> But um, also, I wanted to point out the music as well. Obviously, we're on a totally mm -hmm. different tonal shift going from Jerry Goldsmith's theme, which will get recycled eventually, and to James Horner's completely new score, which, although I would say Goldsmith's is more iconic and memorable due to its recurrence, this one is so much better. Yeah, I, I love this one. And this is right about... I couldn't remember which way around it was. He either did this and got the soundtrack gig on Aliens, or he did Aliens and got the soundtrack gig in this. I think he did this 
And then yeah, got Aliens because was of a few years later, yeah. Yeah, so it would have been that way around. So, yeah, his work on this. And there's some moments where you can actually hear the sort of twang of what would become the iconic Aliens mm. soundtrack when they beam over to the regular one space station and they're all searching these empty hallways. That's a good sort of moment of horror there and finding the bloody bodies. Yeah. Yeah, and I would say there's more of a, as you've mentioned before, more of a naval theme yeah. to the music. Like it wouldn't be out of place if we were seeing two galleons on the, you know, seven seas <laughs> firing cannons at each other. It's, it's, you know, it works on quite a few layers. And it's just, yeah. it, it really, it's really at home with this film. Like if if you were to try and put any of the score from the motion picture onto this. I just feel it wouldn't yeah. fit in any way whatsoever. But speaking of the motion picture, something I like of this does, you still get a docking sequence. It's a much shorter one because you're reusing footage, which is fine in the days before VHS and so on. But it shows you how you can still acknowledge the splendour of a ship without spending five yeah. minutes doing it. <laughs> it's much more concise. It's a little stair apart. I've also got an exchange I want to highlight. It just captures the dynamic perfectly. Spock says, Jim, be careful. McCoy turns around, we will. <laughs> That's what, that was such a nice little... Uh, nice, I, nice little insect I love McCoy's dynamic with Spock. It's yeah. so good. Yeah, but... sometimes a bit of the old racist uncle kind of <laughs> yeah. vibe about him. You can imagine him as being a... A Ukipper, uh, but at the same time, <laughs> at the same time, like we don't know, I suppose, how offensive him calling him uh, like cold blooded is, and so on. You know, maybe maybe that's a term of endearment. Maybe it's an in joke. Green blooded. Green blooded. Yeah, sorry, not cold blooded. You out of your Vulcan mind. <laughs> but yeah, uh, but I, I like those, I like those two. There's a line that Spock says that I absolutely love. It's like as you were so fond of him. Like, Spock says this to Dr. McCoy. I actually forget the scene it is now, but he says, as you were so fond of observing, I am not human. Yeah, it's um, at the end when he, you know, accosts him, stopping him trying to get into that radiation chamber. There is one, if we're quoting uh, interactions that were good, there is one that I quite liked. It's uh, We have a new character joining the crew this time, Savick, Lieutenant Savick. Mm. And she's on the turbo lift with yeah. Kirk. And Kirk observes, have you done something different with your hair? And then she has a conversation with him about uh, the Kobayashi Maru and all that. And then the door is open. McCoy is out there. It's like, who's been holding up the turbo lift? She alights the turbo lift. McCoy gets in. And McCoy turns to Kirk and goes, has she done something with her hair? <laughs> and Kirk's like, I haven't noticed. <laughs> I just, I like that from Kirk. I, I did, yeah. One of the sequels to this, I'm not going to say which one, of what might be relatively obvious from context, one of the sequels to this, I go quite easy on because I really like just the, the times we get to see these characters interact. The time that we get to just see three old friends kind of... Star Trek Five. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I wasn't <laughs> it's, 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 it might be some listeners having cracked the code. You know, the, bit, the bits where it's almost like an a, a, an outer space Top Gear. You know, that's that, that's <laughs> one of the things that I just really enjoy about it, uh, where we just have the characters just hanging out, doing their thing. You know, maybe for off in Yosemite, singing uh, uh, singing songs together. You know, roll, roll, roll your boat. I, I've, I will add, I've only seen that film once. Maybe on the rewatch, which I'll be doing for this show. 
maybe I will decide that it's shit. Like, <laughs> long term <laughs> Okay, I've got a minus i got to bring in here. Shatner, as an actor, this kind of goes across multiple films. It's weird. He can do the small bits really well. Anything that's not a small bit. Oh, he's terrible. <laughs> like, the weird sort of cadence to how he speaks. This kind of scenery chewing stuff. Ah, no, I, I, I just can't get on board. And it's annoying because when he does just tap into the kind of vulnerable side of a character, I think he can do it pretty well. But he's got two modes. He's either being soft and gentle and, you know, his voice kind of quivering with emotion, or he's just being super loud, you know, and uh, and, 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 and doing this weird breakup of speech. Like you're, that, referring, right? you're referring to the sequence when... Right, so... Another bit of body horror in this is obviously with the, uh, not just the horror that we had in the abandoned regular one station, but the actual, the grub worm creatures that went inside Chekhov's ear and uh, Captain Teller, I think his name was. And obviously one of the guys shoots himself, the creature screams in Chekhov's ear and he collapses. The, the, The bug comes out and Kirk obviously shoots it. Bearing in mind that Kirk shoots that thing when it's right next to Chekhov's head. <laughs> uh, you don't, carefully, you don't miss there. Um, but he grabs a communicator. It's, that's the infamous point. We have to speak about the infamous scene where he shouts, Khan, and I think that's what you're referring to here, David. But the lead-up to it as well is you do all this, you keep missing the target. Uh, he's shouting these lines out uh, to try and rile up Khan, and they have a, a back and forth there. <laughs> Shatner's going full Shatner in that scene. Oh, how impressive is it that the two characters never share the screen together? We never see Khan and Kirk in the same room, and yet it is such a good, dramatic uh, dynamic we have here. There is such tension generated, and also just, again, the personal nature of the conflict, despite that they're uh, in these uh, these two different ships or the entire fucking thing, basically. Yeah, again, I think yeah. it's just testament to how intelligent the writing is on this film. Mm-hmm. Like, from beginning uh, to end, it just comes across as a very clever film. And it makes sense for them to be apart as well. Yeah, because the thing is, the first film, all, all the technical aspects were there. In this one, you've got all the technical aspects. In fact, you've presumably got a smaller budget for this one. Oh, yeah. And yet, at the same time, the, the writing is just totally elevates this you know it's saying you can't just put all these same actors into a situation and get a good film of it you need to have a good script and this really has a good script i think it'd be no if you were to have a scene where khan and kirk share the same in the same room together like how would you do it without completely upsetting the rest of the film it wouldn't make sense. It just wouldn't make sense. But both actors convey their animosity so well. Uh, you know, even Shatner with his uh, Shatner-isms and bizarre poses. <laughs> it's, uh, and obviously, Ricardo Montalban as can, he's just phenomenal. Every scene he's in is a treat. I like if there's almost a kind of homoeroticism to it where... He looks kind of sexually aroused when he's taunting uh, Kirk. It's a bit like uh, John Matrix and Bennett in the com- in the Commando. <laughs> yeah. And uh, also when he hears that Kirk's an admiral, you know, there's like a little reaction to like, oh fuck, he's been promoted now. 
Yeah. Just little bits like that made the whole thing. I guess it reveal. doesn't help he's constantly got his, you know, pecs out. <laughs> his waistcoat or whatever is always open yeah. and, and yeah. shiny and glistening like he's a summer ham. <laughs> he's showing off his frame. I, I do have uh, another minor criticism here. Uh, whilst I think they work this part of the plot quite well into Kirk's arc, I think the whole stuff of David being his son, it just it's a, an already relatively cluttered narrative. You know, there's a lot going on here. They're, they aren't... Actually, I say this, I think it actually is, is roughly the same length as the previous one. But it was already a lot going on. I just thought that kind of felt a bit like it was falling in by the wayside for the most part. Was was this originally written as a standalone sequel or was the next couple of films planned to go along with it as well? Because that could feed into the next film. I, I agree, but I think you've got to... Like, if it was written that way, though, you still got to take it like as what it is because you know, it's a bit hmm. like saying... like. Oh yeah, I know that sucked when Marvel did this, but five films from now. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, but I, I guess if they were trying to establish an arc over a few films, which I guess wouldn't have been done back then mm. regularly. No, no, I think I mean it functions two, three, and four do function as a very decent trilogy in their own right, mm. but I don't think they were actually filmed that way. Uh, or they were not at least not thought out yeah. that far ahead. It just happens to be good continuity on this one yeah, occasion. Yeah, really good from the second film. Yeah. Um, but uh, perhaps it's just to up the stakes that little bit more, uh, mm. as you know, just to make us root for the scientists a bit more, I suppose. Yeah, I think maybe it's because of where it comes in, where you know Kirk's getting getting this news just after he's had. Can seems to be winning, you know. He's all like, "Ah, yes, you know." I've. Is it, I think it's this bit we find out, isn't it? Whether, whether they're on, they're uh, now on the planet, and uh, can and can's like, "Aha, I've got all the Genesis uh, data, you know, up yours. I've won." And then I'm pretty sure you've, is it that sequence that he finds out? <laughs> yeah, so. around that time. Yeah, yeah so just it, as they're going back onto the Enterprise, isn't point, it? he beams up all the Genesis stuff, and at that point. He is simply hunting the Enterprise at that point. Yeah, and that's just, I think it's sort of, as a bit of a movie to drop that huge bomb on the audience and also the character, you're just like, oh, that's, I'm kind of more interested in what's happening with Khan right now. <laughs> yeah. And that's yeah. not something that you'd normally think when you find out that someone's got a love child. Kirk's the sort of guy who, I mean, he it's, must at some point thought, I must, have, before. I must have at least two or three out there somewhere. You know? <laughs> Many different star systems. <laughs> <laughs> okay, folks, so uh, you guys got anything else you want to bring in? Is there any, any other minor limitations? Any any problems with the movie? Or? Um, the, I think the only bad thing I've got to say about it is there's probably a bit of a lull just before the Enterprise gets to the space station. Uh, I think things... Maybe start to get a bit slow around that point, but once they're back on there, things pick up again. So, yeah, apart from that little bit, like the whole film is engaging throughout. You, you can barely take your eyes off what's happening. Mm-hmm. About yourself, Alistair, anything you want to bring up? No, I think we've, I think we've covered it all. Uh, it's a great film. I uh, enjoyed it thoroughly. Yeah, are we all going to give this five stars? Yeah, I am. Yep. I go for it. 
Okay, cool. So, there we go. Five stars for the Wrath of Khan. a top 10. We like to end every episode on a uh, top 10 and uh, for this one here is to start with the 10 greatest Star Trek villains of all time. Now this list comes from CBR.com and CBR.com made this list in the year 2020, right at the end of 2020. That just means if there's maybe something amazing going on in the new season of Picard or something, it will not be referenced in there. <laughs> uh, anyway, so what do you reckon? Who, who's going to be making this list of the top 10 villains of all time in Star Trek? I'm, I'm going to go for the Gorn. They're pretty iconic, aren't they? Is it individual species or individual individuals? Uh, so they've got a bit of both. Like, for, in, like for instance... You, you 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 will have individuals in there, but where the where the species kind of have a collective name, then they're in there as well. That's okay. me trying not to give away who one of them is. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm just gonna throw this into the the room. Gold Ducat. Gold Ducat is uh, not on this list. That list is wrong. <laughs> Are we, and it's just the movies or these just TV shows? Uh, this is both. Um, there's one of them which I don't. I I personally wouldn't put them on. Put them on, but uh, there is uh, there is both. Okay, well we'll have to say Can then, won't we? Uh, Can is indeed on the top ten. Uh, oh well, the, the the Borg. Yep, is, the Borg is in probably the, top 10. the most iconic Star Trek body at this point. Would we also count? Would the Queen be counted as part of the Borg, or is she also on that list herself? Uh, the Borg is on it. The Queen is not on uh, separately. Okay. Would, would Q count as a villain? Yes, Q is on the list. He's, he's a mischievous one. He, he finds himself in all sorts of lists. <laughs> uh, I mean, what I would say is, at the moment, you've got three of the top four. Now I'm going to go with uh, the Borg, Khan, and... Probably yeah, 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 they're on, yeah. on, on the top four, but there's well, actually, uh, one of them is not in the top three. We'll need to get in a cling on there, but I want to go with an individual, General Chang, who was the, the villain in Star Trek VI, the Undiscovered Country. Well, I can tell you this the Klingons are in there collectively, but uh, okay. they're not. Okay. One, one of these guys, see, I don't really know the series, but one of these guys just has quite a normal sounding name. Like John Harrison? Uh, no, but it's to the extent that you know with um, you know you know with Guns N' Roses where you see the names of Guns N' Roses, you go, <laughs> right, you've got Axel Rose, you've got Duff McKagan, you've got Slash, and then you have Steve Adler, right? It's like the equivalent <laughs> of that. Uh, I'll I'll talk you through him. So number ten, this right. is the first villain to ever appear in Star Trek, the original series. This is a guy with a totally normal sounding name. He begins as oh, a close friend to Captain Kirk, and he's yeah. a ship's navigator. Who the fuck is he? He gets the he gets godlike powers, mm-hmm. and he starts going 
mad. He's the guy who was aiming, meaning to say with John Harris, and I've actually forgotten his name. His name is Gary Mitchell. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> we come to uh, number nine. Number nine is a relative of somebody on one of the ships, avoiding saying which. Uh, would it be? I forget his name. Is it Spock's brother? No, uh, I don't. I, <laughs> Thomas. I want to say Thomas Riker. Uh, no, no, no. You've got the right. Uh, you got the right. Cruval. Oh, uh, ah, Lore. Yes, absolutely. Lore, who's the older brother of Commander Data, is uh, number nine. I've never seen that episode. Is he? Uh, is he good? He's quite good. But they're both played by uh, Brent Spider, and I think he had quite the laugh and enjoyed playing an evil version of his uh, of his uh, self. Now, this uh, next character, I'm surprised that they made this list. So we're from the J.J. Uh, Abrams uh, ones, they're from the newer films, from the uh, Kelvin timeline, I believe that is. Nero? Yes, Nero. Yeah. So, uh, I, I guess not that I thought Nero was bad, I just kind of nothinged him, really, if he's, he's <laughs> alright. He's quite, you know, he's quite functional. He was, he's, mm-hmm. to be fair, he's better than the other villains that we got in the newer movies. Yeah. Um, next up, so this is a race and whilst they've never been given the same standing in pop culture as the Klingons, they're arguably more evil. Who Could are they talking seems. about? No! The other big one. The Dominion? Nice, they make nice ale. Romulans. Yes, that's right, Romulans. Um, are they more evil, the Klingons? It, it depends. Um, they're, they're, they're both, I mean, the Klingons and Romulans are they're both bored of the Federation. They're both very well fleshed out. You have sympathetic members of their species and unsympathetic members. They certainly can be. Um, but the Romulans were always that sort of emotional, like, <laughs> they were Vulcan's dark twin, if you will. The Vulcans had a violent past. They purged all emotions. And the Romulans did not purge all emotions. So the Romulans are a bit of a what if. Like, what if Spock was a bit of a bastard all the time? Ah, so very like a nice foil to them. Yeah. Yeah, so, number five. This is from Star Trek Enterprise. They are a collective of six alien races located in the Delphic Expanse. What? Vizindi. Yes, that's right, Vizindi. Uh, number four was Q. Mm-hmm. And number three... We've said their name, but was not actually put forward as a, as a straight guess at the beginning. But they're from Deep Space Nine. The Cardassians? No. The Dominion. From, yeah, oh, Dominion. The, yeah, yeah, okay. So what, what are the Dominion all about? So they're basically like a, an evil version of the, of the Federation, right? They're all about xenophobia. But whereas there's, an, there's a quality in the Federation where you could have a ship commanded by a Vulcan or an Andorian and they can fill all roles on board a ship. In the Dominion, every species has its certified, you know, role to fulfill. Mm. You are a Jemadar, you are a warrior, you are a Vorta, you are a negotiator, diplomat, liar extraordinaire. And the changelings and the shapeshifters themselves... uh, you know, just reserve the position of head of state. Um, I think there's intended to be more species to flesh out the Dominion 
but uh, it got easy, I think, more convenient to simplify it to just those three in the long run. Okay. And uh, who do we reckon? So do you reckon that the Borg or Khan is the winner? I want to go Khan since we just saw that film, but neither would surprise me, to be honest. They're both such great villains. If you had to pick one yourself, say if a gun is coming to your head, so you had to choose one who you like, who you personally like better. Um, <laughs> and what about yourself, Jim? Are you? I'd go for the Borg. Borg. I think uh, they're more of an iconic baddie. Um, right, so coming into this as someone who knows the series the least, I will say that in terms of the iconography... The Klingons are the one I was most aware of first, but after that, it was it was the Borg. However, um, I couldn't have told you anything about the Borg, I just knew what the aesthetic was. Anyway, the Borg is number two. So, number one, the uh, according to CPR, the greatest Star Trek villain of all time, that is Khan! So... What do I win? So that is the end of... Uh, that's the end of our first episode, basically, of, uh, of Star Trekking. Folks, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, being on board the good ship uh, USS Horror Cult Films with you here. I uh, hope that we will be beamed up again in the near future to talk about movies three and four. Now, for anyone listening, the way that we are structuring this, because we are still a uh, horror film podcast, is we'll be doing standard horror episodes between Star Trek ones. So we've got a horror one coming up. Not going to say what it is, but it's going to be really fucking good. And then we're back to Star Trek then horror, and then Star Trek. There might be a uh, slight slowdown of the next month just because it is Fright Fest. So I'm going to be away doing the uh, coverage of Fright Fest. We'll be seeing about 25 movies, writing 25 reviews. And basically at that point, I want a wee break. But we will be back some point in uh, maybe, maybe late August, maybe September. We'll be back talking about numbers three and four of the Search for Spock and the Voyage Home. Until then, everybody, live long and prosper. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye.